You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome in, everyone, to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show who are on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode. I'm going to do another How I Got the Shot episode. I recently posted some um, images that came out of a, re a family portrait shoot that I did here in Utah, kind of at the almost the peak of the fall color. I think it was a little late for the peak, but almost the peak of fall color here in Utah. And there were a lot of uh, listeners who follow me on my personal account that saw that post. And they asked about the lighting, if I would cover the lighting of, of how I did that for those photos. And so I'm going to do that in this episode. That's what we're going to cover. Um, I need to start off with how I, the equipment I use and, and a little bit about me in this episode for people who are newer. So just so that they know. So I, I love doing all types of photography, everything from uh, landscapes to, to portraits, obviously to, uh, if I could do macro more, I would, I, I love nearly everything. <laughs> I don't love newborns. I've done some newborns. I'm not good at it. And I don't have what it takes to be good at it. I don't like the environment you have to shoot in uh, with newborns. You have to get it really hot. It's just not for me. So shout out to everyone who who does newborns and does a good op good job with it because <laughs> it's not easy. That is a tough, tough genre of photography. Maybe the toughest. I think it might, at least to me. Um, I am not a full-time photographer either. I have a day job in information security. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy that. And I have no intentions of replacing it with photography. Still, I'm a super passionate hobbyist photographer, and I'm an extremely lucky man. In, in many, many ways, I'm an extremely lucky man. But one of those is my wife has taken up an interest in photography as well. Now, she doesn't listen to photography podcasts, not even mine. She doesn't read everything that comes out from photography media. She doesn't test all sorts of hardware and software related to photography. She leaves all of that craziness to me. And I do bring a lot of that craziness into my life. I love doing it. It's so much fun. The thing she enjoys most, though, in photography and, and why we do client family portrait shoots is because she enjoys doing that. She loves interacting with the families. She loves creating memories for those families. And I do too. It, it's really fun to be able to get um, some, some excellent results and be able to see the families just love the portraits that we take of them. Uh, we do have a studio space in our house. Uh, it's just a little bit on the small side. It's uh, kind of a makeshift thing. We didn't plan for it. Like we built our house not very long ago, but it was just a little before... I really got into photography very well, and we didn't plan to have a studio here in the house. But we have a, a room kind of converted into a makeshift studio and, and sufficient that we could easily do family portraits. We could have done this family of five in the studio, but our clients just tend to like being outdoors. Uh, I'd say like 95% of the clients that we get, the the people who are asking us about it, they want to do it outdoors, and and I don't think they'd ever consider even doing it in a studio. That's just not what they're looking for, and I don't know if that's uh, very common. Maybe it's my my portfolio where we mostly have outdoor family portraits that we show, and and that draws in the clients that have that kind of 
desire, <laughs> what kind of background they want, or if it's uh, it's the canyons and the mountains that are so accessible here in Utah where we can get there pretty quickly and have just beautiful, beautiful backgrounds. Almost any time of the year, we can we can have beautiful backgrounds for the, the portraits. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the, if that's how common that is, but that's the case here. So I bring that up because it means the lighting equipment I'm going to use needs to be portable. I need to be able to take it with me into the outdoors and more importantly, into the mountains here in Utah and be able to set it up and use it I need to be able to do it quickly so that the family is not waiting forever, uh, especially the males that are being <laughs> being having their pictures taken tend to get very impatient and do not want to wait and they want to be done like before we start. And uh, so so it's really critical that I have equipment that I can do that with and, uh, and, and that plays a role in what we're doing here and what I'm talking about here. But let's start now with kind of the shoot preparation. I don't want to spend a ton of time here. I've already done a full episode on this. I have an episode called The Five Things That Should Be On Every Photographer's Pre-Shoot Checklist. That you should go check out about what the things I, I go through and think about as we're preparing to leave for a shoot. And this was a... It, it, the reason I bring that up is the... Uh, equipment I bring on a shoot or that I think through as I'm working through that five things checklist, it changes depending on how many people are going to be in the shoot. How many models am I going to be shooting at once? And this was a family of five. So that changes a little bit what I'm thinking about and how I'm thinking through it. And in the, so let's start with the flashes and then we'll get into the like modifiers and light stands. I'm going to talk about all the equipment. I've talked a lot about this equipment in the past, but it feels like I need to again here because there's decisions that need to be made given how many people I am shooting. Now I've talked about this, like I said, in other episodes. So uh, in particular, if you're totally new to flash photography, you haven't added that to what you're using with portraits, then there's a photo taco episode. I'll have a link in the show notes, or you can go over to phototacopodcast.com and search for this just called inexpensive flash. So the equipment I'm going to go through, there's a little bit more information about all this equipment over there, why I picked it and, and, and all of that, uh, other alternative options. All of that is over there in, in that episode, as well as on the budget gear flash page. So if you go to phototacopodcast.com, there's budget gear listed. And then there's a, a link there on that page that, that is a flash kit. And I talk, I go through your options, why you should choose it and, and all of that. Um, the other podcast episode I'll point you to was one from a long time ago, back when the master photography podcast was actually the improved photography podcast uh, with Jim Harmer. And that's beginner's guide to flash. So you know, I'll have a link to that in the show notes that so you can go check it out. Okay, so let's start with the controller. That's the first element that I need to make sure I bring with me for my flash. And this one's simple because it's, there's no choices here. I don't have to have a different controller based on group size or any other factors, really. I only have one controller I use right now for every shoot I do where I'm, I'm using flash. And that's the Godox controller. I'm a, we use Godox equipment. And uh, there's really that's really the only choice for me that there is for these kinds of things. There's the 
Godox lights are super portable. They're very affordable and they are very high quality. So it max it, it reaches everything that I look for as a hobbyist photographer who does paid family portrait shoots. And uh, so I, I use the Godox X-Pro controller. I'll have a link in the show notes. You need one specific to your camera and they have one for Canon, Nikon, Sony, Olympus, Panasonic, Fuji, and Pentax. So they cover all of the major manufacturers and I'll have links to all of them in the show notes if you're interested in that. Then I have um, two different kinds of lights for Godox. There's the Godox TT600. And these are your more, what you think of as a, a flash. Um, this They are the, the kind that, that kind of like have the ability to sort of fold in half and the top half just kind of swivels back and forth like to a, a 90 degree angle and back to, to being uh, in line with the flash. Um, they run on double A's. They're, they're really good flashes. I did not use them in the shoot, but I did bring some with me in case. Just like if we wanted to get creative and and do something different and and we had more cooperation than usual from the, <laughs> the men of the group. But I'm being stereotypical here for sure. But maybe there are, there are occasionally some men that are they're very good about uh, about the shoot. But most of the time, they've been dragged there <laughs> and don't want to do it. Uh, and then there's the Godox AD, and that's D as in dog, 200 lights that I just love. I just love these lights. You can go read all about them in the budget flash gear page, so I'm going to go into that. But that's that's kind of the, the basic things that I bring on every shoot where I'm going to do flash. The controller, Godox TT600 with fresh batteries, fresh recharged, fully recharged batteries, and the Godox AD200, which are lithium-ion batteries and freshly charged, they're fully charged on those two. I bring all those with us, so I have options because they're very small, very portable, and it allow it gives me the flexibility to do whatever I see and the family is ready for as we're shooting. All right, so let's get into the modifiers then. Far more interesting discussion on the modifiers because you know, to me, the Godox lights are such a no-brainer. There's not much decision there. I didn't spend a lot of time on it because of that. But the light modifiers, they can be... I have a few different choices, first of all. I've, um, I've invested in different types of light modifiers over the years so that I have choice as I'm going to do a shoot on what it is I want to use. And uh, what it, depending on the group size... Things may change depending on conditions like what the weather's like, whatever it is. I, I have some choices. So let me walk through the choices that I've got. And um, hopefully you'll find it interesting. Maybe you'll want to invest in some of the same things so that you have similar choices. I've had people ask questions about that too. Um, let's start with the very first light modifier I invested in way back. And <laughs> this was many years ago. And it's still a good light modifier today. I can still highly recommend it. I started with the Photodiox F60 Quick Collapse. I've talked about this a little bit before in other shows, and it's definitely listed in my budget gear page. But it's it's a it's a 24 inch hexagon softbox. The name come, has a 60 in it because it's a 60 centimeter softbox, which may get you a little confused. I know it did me at first. I was like, oh, it's a 60 inch softbox, which is huge, by the way. 60 inches would be massive. Uh, almost unwieldy, perhaps. <laughs> um, I don't shoot with one that big. and But 24 inches is still a decent size, but it's really more suitable for single, uh, you know, one, two, maybe three models, something like that, small, small groups. And um, it, I bought it because, you know, way back, because of two two things. Two, it, it met, it did two things for me. First, 
it was inexpensive. It was about seventy dollars. So, and that may seem like a lot of money, and it is it is a lot to be spending on them on anything really. <laughs> but um, in this case, as you look at like all the other modifiers that are available, and as I go through some of the others I have, it's pretty inexpensive compared to them. So I liked that. And second, it's super portable, like the most portable kind of light modifier I could find. That's that's the the two reasons. It was the right price and it was super portable because that's the need I have most of the time to be able to take it out. And so I do, I love that modifier. It's a really, really good one. If you're, if you are getting just one modifier that you want to start out with and, and start adding flash to your photography, your portrait work, then this is a really good one to be able to start out with. Uh, one downside is it only would work with, if you're using the Godox gear, the TT600 lights, it does not work with the AD200. So just note that. I also own two, uh, so I only own one of those Photox, Photodiox F60s. I own two of the Photodiox Easy Pro Deep Parabolic Softboxes. They're $120 a piece, so almost twice as much as the F60. Um, They're also 12 inches larger at 36 inches, so that's it, it's nice because you get softer light. The bigger that softbox can be, the softer the light will be. So that's it's nice to have that, which I just talked about the 60 inches. Yeah, you're going to get much softer light, but they become uh, much harder to set up and take down. The bigger they are, obviously, they act as uh, wind sails <laughs> out in the outdoors too, and, and there could be downsides. So I, I really like these. Um, as far as portability goes, the F60 is is more portable because it's so easy to expand and collapse. The quick collapse part of the name there and the product name is totally accurate. It's super, super easy to be able to expand and collapse that softbox. It goes up and down fast. Uh, and so it's, it's super portable. The easy pros are a little bit less portable, but still pretty close. Um, what I found with them is they are, they're kind of hard to expand not hard because there's a lot to do. It's just the tension that gets put on the frame of the softbox that you know makes it rigid, so it'll be a softbox. The tension it takes, it, it's a lot. It requires a lot. I can't just like do it with my hands. I have to lie, put the softbox down on the ground and push on the softbox the 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 ring, it's hard to describe, the ring that goes around all of the metal rods that applies the tension. I have to push that ring down on the ground or I can't get enough force to be able to expand the softbox all the way. And then the mechanism, there's there's like a there's this ring you have to push down. There's like a button on that ring. And when the button engages, which I found to be a little bit tough to get, um, then, then that's what prevents the ring from just like, uh, you know, springing back and collapsing again. Um, and I've had that ring kind of slip the button sort of like disengage. And then the whole softbox like collapses right there in the middle of a shoot before it's been kind of a, a challenge with it, but they are, they're portable and they're easier to set up than some other softboxes that I've got. So they're a really good choice. I also need to tell you that, uh, in order to mount the AD 200s to it, I had to invest in several S-type bracket Bowens mounts from Godox as well. And um, they're $25 a piece, so that adds to the cost. And that allows me to, to get those, those really good AD200 lights 
mounted into the softbox. Um, I chose that the softbox is a Bowens mount and the uh, that's what this bracket provides too is a Bowens mount so that you can get the softbox and the lights together. And uh, it, they're, they're really easy to use. It's just being aware, because I wasn't at first, that I needed those. If I was buying them today, so that's the ones that I have, the S-Type Bracket Bowens mounts from Godox. What I would buy now, if I was, is they, they've updated them. Godox has a new version called the S2 Speedlight Bracket. And the differences aren't uh, a big deal, but that's what I would buy today if I, was, if I was investing in them. So I just wanted to note that for anyone new to all of this and looking at potentially building up some... Uh, flash modifier equipment that you're going to need those. All right, so I have the Photox stuff, Photodiox stuff that I could use in this shoe. Next up is Magmod. I've invested in some Magmod gear. I really like Magmod gear. Uh, the problem with it is kind of twofold. There's downsides to everything, right? Pros and cons to everything. Um, it's a little overpriced in my opinion, just a little bit. It's not horribly overpriced. It's not like outrageous or I would never have invested in it. But even as a hobbyist like me, it made sense for me to invest in some of this equipment. And the biggest appeal is it's super portable, it uses magnets, so it's really easy to change stuff out. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on it here, um, but you know, there's I own the MagSphere that's fifty dollars, the Mag Bounce that's fifty dollars, the Mag Box is three hundred dollars. So you can see right there, there's that's their soft box. It's 24 inches. It's a good soft box and it has some unique features that I really like, especially like being able to gel the soft box in a way that I haven't seen in any other soft box. It's so, so nice. So flexible. It opens up your creativity. Like I said, there you don't the, want the family waiting around for you to do something. So if you get an idea of something that you could do in lighting, if it's going to take like five minutes or more to go and change things and set it up, that's a, that's going to be a no that you're going to lose dad again <laughs> or the males that are that have to be, have their portraits taken. Uh, you, you just it's so hard. So the Magmod enables that and the price tag is set accordingly because of how portable they are, how much creativity you get unleashed or, or opportunity to have that increases the value and increases the cost. So I have some of those things that I could have I could choose for this shoe. Last up is Godox softboxes. Yep, I have Godox lights and I have Godox softboxes. So Godox has a 47-inch octagon Bowens mount softbox. Uh, 47 inches is big, really, really big. It is not portable. So I did not buy this as something to drag out into the mountains here in Utah. It is very not portable. In order to expand the softbox, you have individual metal rods. I think there's something like 8, 10, 15. I don't know how many. I can't remember. It's been I, one thing. It's, it's obvious, though, as you go to set this up, that these are created for, for use in studio or at least like I'm going to set it up and I'm going to leave it set up. I'm not taking this thing back down. I'm not collapsing it. I'm not taking it somewhere unless I'm I'm moving houses or I'm moving studios or something like that. And then you might need to take it down so you can get the softbox to its new final destination. But you're not taking this up and down, um, dragging it all over the hills of Utah and the mountains. That is not what it's for. Um, again, you do need for these, you need that same S-type bracket in order to mount the Godox 8200 lights to these softboxes. Good softboxes. I really love them. The size is just about perfect for my smaller studio space. I couldn't really go any bigger than these. Um, and they were very inexpensive at $45 a piece. So it's, it's a really good option just 
for studio, <laughs> not for this. So as I went through those options, you can probably already tell what I chose as I did this. Uh, it really came down to the Photodiox Easy Pro uh, softboxes, those 36 inch softboxes that are fairly portable or the Magmod gear. And since the Magmod gear is so little, I just brought both with me, but I intended to start the shoot. And my starters, make a sports analogy here, my starter in this shoot was the Photodiox Easy Pro Deep Parabolic Softboxes. And it was because I'm lighting a group of five here. The Magmod gear, um, the MagSphere would be kind of a, a really good option. And I really love the creativity and the things you can do with the MagSphere with a single person or two. Um, but beyond that, the MagSphere, you really need two of them. I do have two of them, but it they're, the light that it produces is not as soft as the light I can get out of the Easy Pro uh, softboxes. So I, I like that better. The Magbox could be a really excellent choice here, even for a group of five, as long as I had two of the Magboxes. And I don't. They're $300 a piece to get the kit you need to have all the pieces to actually use a Magbox. And I've only invested in one so far. That may be an investment I'll be making again soon because I do want the option of being able to have them be that much easier to set up, expand and collapse. They're a little easier than the Easy Pro softboxes. And uh, and then the filter creativity, like the gels that you can use, there's some advantages. And the only downside is the cost. So, so that's what's limiting my choice in this particular case. I needed more than one softbox to, to get even lighting on this group. And so I didn't plan on starting my Magmod gear. All right, so there's there you go. Photo Diox Easy Pro Deep Parabolic Softbox is what I went with as far as the light modifier. Okay, let's talk about light stands very briefly. I don't want to spend a ton of time here. You need good light stands. You need something that's going to, especially where I was going, you know, in the mountains. I'm going to be on uneven terrain. I'm going to be, uh, there's going to be wind. There's certainly going to be wind. I'm in the canyon. There's always wind in a canyon. And even on uh, nice days where I'm not in a canyon, but I'm outdoors, they're just wind sails, like I've mentioned, and, and it's really easy. It doesn't take much of a breeze at all to uh, to knock over a light stand, potentially kill your flash. Uh, I've had flashes get ruined, get broken because a light stand fell over. Um, I have tried a whole lot of inexpensive light stands, and there's a lot of options. But I've all, most of them that are inexpensive are actually cheap. And that's, that's the connotation I want there. Cheap. They're not going to last. They're not going to uh, hold up your, your, they're not durable is the biggest problem, I guess is what I should say. They're cheap. And I don't, I, I hesitate to ever call out a manufacturer to avoid, just would rather say the ones that uh, stay on the positive side of things and, uh, and not say which ones to avoid. But in this case, I, I really think I need to say, I cannot recommend and, and discourage anyone from investing in the cheap newer brand light stands. I've bought several of them. I've been disappointed in every one of them. They're not durable. They don't last. It's worth it. If you can't afford anything else, then wait <laughs> because they're, they're just not going to last. The ones I like the best, and so now we'll get on the positive side of things again. The ones I like the best are the Impact Air Cushioned Heavy Duty Light Stands. They are $55 a piece, so 
a little a lot more expensive than the, the newer and and some others uh, that are similar in cost. So really, that might be one of the bars. If if it's under say like forty dollars, thirty five dollars, something like that for the light stand for one light stand, that's probably in the cheap area, <laughs> and they they probably will not last. They're probably not durable. The kinds of corners that have to be cut in order to make a light stand that inexpensive are making cuts too far, in my opinion, and you're going to be unhappy. It might work for a shoot or two. You might get by for a little bit, but uh, at least for me, what I'm doing in going outdoors with families all regularly, the the abuse that I put onto these light stands is more than those cheap light stands can take. So these impact lights, I like a lot. They are heavy. I mean, the heavy duty is in the name. Not so heavy that that you can't lift them and carry them. I, I drag them around all the time just in my hands. But they are a little bit heavier. They're definitely going to, they're sturdier. They've last, I've had the same three or four of these for about four or five years now, taking them out regularly on outdoor portrait shoots. And, and they're great. I really like them. Uh, this is especially easy because we use, um, we have a Max Sports collapsible wagon. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's 85 bucks, but this thing saves us because it's what we use to tote around all our equipment, even on like really uneven ground, uh, going all over the place in the mountains. I, I can put my light stands, my light modifiers, uh, maybe some props even into this little wagon and, and take it all over the place. And, and it's great. It, it just makes it so that I can we can walk with the family, talk with the family. And then uh, when we get to where the family wants to do the shoot, it's easy to pull a gear out of that wagon, set it up quickly as fast as I can and get going. And usually my wife is like working with the family on where they should stand, how they should stand, where they should have their hands, all of those sorts of things while I'm setting everything up and works out super well for us. So, uh, you know, get a link in the show notes. Still, even though these are heavy duty light stands, there's the wind still can knock them over for sure. They're, they're not so heavy that the wind, like they're very wind resistant more than the cheap kind the really inexpensive versions but you're going to need something to weigh them down i like um newer sandbags so here you go there's there's lots of newer equipment i do like but not their light stands um newer has 28 for six sandbags that have these zippers perfect for being able to do this um they call them sandbags i would never put sand in them i wouldn't put sand in anything to weigh it down because sand just gets out it gets everywhere for your photography gear, at least might be fine for something else you need to weigh down, but I wouldn't use it here. And so instead, my recommendation is pea gravel. Go to the hardware store, find pea gravel. It's it's good and heavy. It's small to get it in there. And uh, and that stuff will stay in there even if they develop holes, which I've had them develop holes. As you use them, they wear and they, they develop holes and, and you have to replace them. But good sandbags to be able to weigh down those flashes and keep them upright even in the wind. Okay, so now let's move on to actually using this equipment. And so so let's let's talk about positioning the lights. Now normally my goal when I'm setting up lights, so this going into a shoot, uh, especially of this group size, but let's start with the ge- the general generic rule. My goal is always to get the lighting as close as I can to the models without having the modifier or the stand in the frame. So no matter what, if it's a single model, I'm going to get it as close as I can to that model without getting any of the lighting equipment in the frame. 
If it's two people, same thing. If it's five people, same thing. I want to get those lights as close as I possibly can. Now, it's it's counterintuitive somewhat there. I didn't believe it either when I first had that recommended to me. So if you're listening, you're saying, wait, but that's going to make it really hot. That's going to like the not hot temperature, but the light really super bright on them. Yes, that's right. And that means you turn down the flash power. <laughs> you turn down the flash power. And it, what it helps with is making the super soft light that we all want. Now, when I say soft light, that's the transition from the brightest bright on your model, from your lights, to the shadow area where it's getting darker, is a nice smooth, slow transition. We love that lighting. We don't want to eliminate every shadow there is. That's like flat lighting. That's what people call flat lighting. But we want to make it so that there are some shadows and the transition from the highlights, the bright parts on your model to those shadows is a slow, smooth transition. That's very appealing to us. That is the sign or one of the signs of a professional photo that those those shadows the highlights to shadow transition is very smooth. What the opposite would be something like you get in the noonday sun. The sun is a very harsh light and it causes very distinct sharp edges in that transition from highlights to shadow. It's like very rigid lines and that's what we're trying to avoid when we do this. And so the the goal I have is always to get those light modifiers as close to the models as I can. In this case, in order to make that happen, well, and the second goal <laughs> that I have in the shoot is to use as few lights as possible. And so uh, if I can, I'll use one. But in this case, I already know from experience one light, when you're trying to get it as close as you can to the models, that produces a, you know, that makes it so that one of the models, the models closest to the light, is much brighter than the model furthest from the light. That fifth person over away from the one light does not get lit very well, almost at all, actually. The lights just, they fall off so much by that kind of distance, which isn't huge, but by that distance, it's not good. And, and sure, you can turn up the light, you can turn up the power on the flash, but it, it, and you'll you'll add some lights to that fifth person over, but that also adds more lights to the first person, and they are way brighter than that fifth person. So in in a ca- in this case, or actually in every case, anything above three, I am for sure going to go to two lights. I, I'm forced into it in order to produce even lighting and reach my first goal of having those lights as close to the people as possible. Now, could you back up the light and make it so that the light is evenly covering it? Maybe even like just position it by your camera. Sure, you could do that. That helps. Uh, adding artificial light that way helps. But it, it also becomes almost kind of on-camera flash at that point. And that is not what I'm going for. I want to have shadows. And that produces more flat lighting and uh, and isn't as compelling. So I knew going into this group of five, I need two flashes. So I brought my, my Easy Pro Soft boxes. I have two of them with the light stands on all of that. Then I'm going to place them as I'm setting this up. I'm going to place them camera right and camera left near the models as close as I can get them to the models. I put them about two feet in front of the family. Uh, 
I raise them up so that the, the soft boxes are above the head of the tallest person in the family. Again, I want to get as close as I can. So it's just slightly above the head of the tallest person that I'm taking a portrait of. And then I'll angle them down, point them down towards the family. It's usually around a 45 degree angle, maybe a little less. Uh, it kind of depends on the terrain too, which I'll talk about in a second here with that added uh, some challenge to this. So again, two feet in front of the family, raised up high above their heads, pointing down towards them. Now here's, this is a challenge in audio to describe this. So I'll have a chart in the show notes that you should go check out, but um, I'll, I'll try in audio to describe this. So let's take an example of the softbox that is camera left. So it's it's well in front of the camera because it's only two feet away from the family, family, but it's camera left. And aiming these things, it's there's a, a little different technique that I've, I've, I was, uh, I read about, I think somewhere a long time ago and I've done some testing and I, I like doing this better. So, um, I try to imagine a, a high powered, like high, uh, water, <laughs> water coming out of the soft box, really high pressure. That's what I was thinking of high pressured water coming out of the soft box so that the water doesn't just like, you know, roll out and immediately fall down from the softbox. I imagine it under super high pressure and that's because that's how the light's going to flow. But it, in my head, it helps for me to think about water under super high pressure coming out of that softbox. And I'm, I'm trying to, that, that helps me to identify the edges and how, how the light's going to flow out of that softbox on this left light stand, this camera left light stand, light modifier. I'm going to take the right edge of that softbox, and I'm going to point it so that the per the model furthest right in the group, the one furthest away from the softbox, is going to get hit by that water. That's how I'm aiming these things. That's where I want to make sure it's going. It could mean that the the model closest to the softbox, the the model furthest left in the photo, is not going to be hit as much. And that's okay because I have two softboxes that are mirroring each other. And I'm doing the same with the softbox that is camera right. Now, the alternative setup, the way to point these things, would be something that I think most photographers try to do. And, and I did for a long time until I tried what I just said. And that is, let's take again the, the softbox that is camera left. And that's to focus on the left edge of the softbox and getting it lined up with and making sure the model furthest left in the photo is getting hit by that water, that high pressure water coming out of the softbox. The challenge or the reason I focus on the other direction, the right edge of that left softbox to the right person in the photo is that um, it, it helps me to get more even lighting on the group. If I do it the other way, I, I find that even with the two softboxes mirrored and set up in, in the similar configuration I've talked about, I end up with the, the models on the ends in the photo being slightly brighter than the ones in the middle. In fact, the ones in the middle kind of, uh, they, they just don't get the same level of light. So this slight change in what I just described, and hopefully you can see with the diagram <laughs> what I mean, um, that makes it so that I end up with more even lighting across the group. So that's what I, that's what I'm going to do when I have something like a family of five that I'm going to light. 
And all this has to happen as fast as you can possibly get it. You don't want the family sitting there waiting for you to set up your lights. And so it works out really great. I'm so glad that I have my wife there to uh, engage with the family, get them set up so that the time I'm spending to set up the the lights, um, they don't really notice all that much. Okay. So, so now that's, that's how I approach all of this. Now we're on uneven ground <laughs> in the mountains here in Utah. Um, many of these photos are taken like on a river's edge. The river itself wasn't super compelling and, and didn't end up in the photo a lot. But um, the, the main one I'm, I'm most happy with from this shoot is one that was taken where the ground was, it felt like 45 degree angle, <laughs> a slope going down towards the river that was like 45 degrees. But it, I'm sure it was more like 25 or 30 or something like that. Um, but it, it was a pretty steep slope that we're on. We had to, in order to get the bench that the family's sitting on to even be almost level, we had to put some rocks underneath one edge of the, the bench so that it would, it would be kind of level. And, um, and it was a real challenge to get the family nice and, and level and straight in comparison to the surroundings that they're in. But the colors and the trees and the bushes around it made it all worth it because it's, it's just amazing the fall colors that were there and available to us in that scene. And the family was really, that, that was super important to them. They wanted to have the fall colors as a major part of the photo. I, I generally try to make the background kind of be innocuous like there's nothing really important there and we'll talk about that as the exposure stuff in just a second but uh, in this case we really wanted to emphasize it more than I normally would in the background and uh, and it made it hard for me to get these flashes set up the way I want them because of this steep slope that they're standing on and uh, so I, I could you know shorten the the light stand collapse the light stand on the one side that was uh, you know, in this case, it was camera right was the uh, the beginning of the slope, and camera left was was kind of where the slope went to and where the river was, and so camera right, I would I had to collapse that light stand a lot, and it was still above the family's head, and then on camera left, I had to expand that light stand as tall as I could get it, and I, it still didn't quite mirror each other. It was the best I could do with the uneven ground. Uh, I still tried to get them as close to him as possible, still try to get it about two feet in front of the family, but there were bushes and trees to deal with. And I couldn't quite get them to be exactly the same distance from each other either. Uh, but I still, you know, the general principles of what I tried to do in these shoots, I still applied as best as I could and as fast as I could. I, I also did not want to spend tons of time trying to make sure I exactly mirrored everything. And that's possible because I could actually control the power of both of these lights independently through the controller make them part of a different group i can control the power differently they'll still flash at the same time because they're on the same channel and um and i can get good results so i could turn it, it ended up that the one on the left camera left was a little further away from the family than the one on the right and also a little closer so that kind of makes it so that the flash power setting uh ended up being about the same between the both but I think, and and I, I ended up using it that way, but I had the ability if I needed to, to control both flashes independently so that I could use flash power to kind of equate things between the two flashes. So let's talk about flash power. How do you set it up? So I have a six step process that I use that I've come up with. Uh, it's probably not, you know, 
earth shattering, groundbreaking, massively different from other people who do family portraits. But this is how I think through getting exposure set with flash. So here's, here's the six steps. The first one is set the ISO as low as you can get it on your camera. And I only increase the ISO as a last resort. So if I can't get the exposure I'm looking for, and I've done everything, all the other uh, five things on this list, then ISO becomes the, the last thing I will go for. But it's the first step is I'm gonna set it as low as I can get it on my camera. Number two, I set the aperture so that all the models will be in focus. Super important, it, it, your, your photo, if you have two rows of people, that second row has to be in focus. You can't have them be out of focus. And even if you have a single row of people, it still ends up that they, as they line up into a single row, they're at different depths. They're not exactly in the same focal plane. So you can sort of get away with it a little bit if the model, the eye closest to the camera is in sharp focus and then the person that's almost in the same focal plane, but not quite, is a little bit out of focus. We wouldn't look at that. Most people don't look at that and say, oh, you missed, you don't have focus on the on the other people. They'd probably say, yeah, that looks pretty close to in focus. Now, there's exceptions to this. If you're shooting at f1.8 or something even more open, 1.4, that depth of field is going to be so narrow, even a little change in the, the depth is going to be a problem. But I, I want to go for my goal is as small, as wide open an aperture as I can get. So f2.8 if it's a single model for sure or or more, uh, or, you know, more wide open. And like I said, 1.8, 1.4, something like that. Uh, if there's two, three, four, and, and up to this five mark, or if you end up with a, a much bigger group, you might have to stop down the aperture even more. But just to make sure, I usually go and even shooting crop, something like f4 f5 6 um, to be safe and as long as you're kind of you know closer to your models that you can still get some depth of field but in this case i also wanted the background to be more prominent i didn't want it to be entirely blurred out we wanted to see the shapes of the leaves and the trees because of the color and everything so stopping down a little bit in this case was a good idea but i the, the whole point here is step number two is getting your aperture set appropriate for the scene you're shooting. The number of models, what you want to do with the background, how much bokeh you want, how much depth of field you want. Setting that as step number two. All right, step number three, I use spot metering, and that's really important for this. I use spot metering, and I set the shutter speed so that the brightest thing in the background is about two-thirds of a stop underexposed. I find the brightest thing in the background... I, on Canon cameras, you have to do the center of the, of the frame for um, light metering. So you can't, it does not follow the focus point. Some cameras it will, but for the Canon, my Canon camera, it doesn't. I find the brightest thing. I set the shutter speed according to that so that that brightest thing is about two thirds of a stop underexposed. And, um, and then I move on. Now, a note about shutter speed. You kind of have to get a lot of practice with this in setting the shutter speed. Um, you, you have to be cognizant of the max sync speed on your camera. I'm not going to go into this episode. I have a whole episode called flash shutter sync. You need to go and check out if you need to learn about this, but, um, you, you, you have to keep your flash under a certain shutter speed and over a certain shutter speed. And I've talked about the two by four rule in deciding what the minimum shutter speed is that you can get away with and still end up with bright photos, especially if you're hand holding 
which I'm always handholding. There's there's no time to deal with a tripod <laughs> as I'm working with families to get portraits and how we're trying to get through as many um, different locations and different kinds of shots as we can. There's no time to mess around with a, a tripod. It, there's barely time to mess around with the lights. So, um, so the shutter speed is a, a challenging thing to figure out. And... <sighs> A, an important thing to note, as we've talked about the the triangle now, the ISO, the aperture, and the shutter speed, the ISO and aperture both affect both sources of light, the ambient light and your flash. The, those two things affect both of them. Um, the, the shutter only affects the ambient light. It does not affect your flash, the light from your flashes. I know this seems crazy, but it, but it is absolutely true. There's you can go try it for yourself and see. That's why it's a powerful thing to use. Now it's the third thing here because there's prior there's other things we're getting at with the aperture and the ISO. We already talked about that. But with the shutter speed, that's how you control the ambient light. That's how I I make the backgrounds of my scenes um, as un, unobtrusive. I said I don't. I'm not trying to feature the background. I'm featuring the models. That's the point of taking the photo is the models. And I don't want the background to be super bright because our eyes look at the brightest things in the photo. That's where we're drawn to. We want it drawn to the people in the photo, not the background. And when there's something super bright in the background, our eyes are drawn to it. We take the focus away, not, not literal camera focus. We take our, our mental focus away from the people we don't want that so for this reason you have to stay under a certain shutter speed you don't have full flexibility unless you enable or you have equipment that does high speed sync again not something i want to cover here but that is a way to overcome that uh to some degree and um but you have to stay above a minimum so i have a range right i, I sh was shooting with a 24 to 70 when i did this i'm on a crop sensor and that means the minimum shutter speed would be like 1 40th of a second I want, I want to keep it above that. I could, and, and I know I could cheat a little. I have image stabilization on the lens and I, I tend to be able to hold the camera pretty steady. So I could go, I could definitely go down into the one uh, twentieth, um, maybe even 80 shutter speed of 80 and still be okay. But, uh, but that's, that's the limit. That's the slowest I can go. And the fastest on my Canon 80D, the maxing speed is 250th of a second. So that I have to stay within that range and to use the flashes. That's why it's super important to arrange the right time to meet the clients to do the shoot. Um, I don't want the harsh shadows either, but for me, what I've, what we do is we, t we ask that the family meet us 90 minutes before blue hour. And that so that we'll do the shoot that takes us all the way through golden hour, which is beautiful lighting, very nice to do, but it means I can get that shutter speed to be within that range and I don't have to deal with high speed sync and the lights great. We don't have harsh shadows from the sun that makes everything come together so that the lighting can look like it does in these photos. Um, now flash power, how do I decide flash power? So I start out with a flash at about 1 16th power. Now there's no magic to 1 16th. It's not like that's the ideal flash power. You just, you have to start somewhere. You don't really know on every scene. I'm getting a little better at predicting based on the ambient light that I'm seeing what flash power to actually start with. But the one I'd recommend for everyone is 1 16th power. You have room to go up and you have room to go down from there. And you know, I'm gonna take a test shot. It's probably not right. 
one sixteenth is probably not what I need, but then I know how to adjust it from there. So I do that. I, I set it one sixteenth, usually take a test shot and adjust. And I have to constantly be monitoring the light power um, when by throughout the shoot, because I, you know, we meet 90 minutes before blue hour. That means the sun's going down. That means the light, the ambient light's changing. And I've got to change the power plus as you're changing locations, you might be in more of a shady area for one shot and more of an exposed area on another shot and the ambient light levels are going to be different. So you, you have to remember that as you're changing everything, you can't just set the flash power and go, you've got to, to, to keep that in mind. And that same applies to some of the other settings too. your, your aperture may have to change based on how the group is set up for the shot. And if they're in two rows now, or now if they're one row, or am I changing models so that I only have one, like, are we doing individuals, which I'm Almost all the families want individuals. All of these kinds of things have to be something you're thinking through as you're doing this regularly. Okay, so um, so I tend to. How do I decide if the flash is high enough? If if it's got enough power, um, I I look for a couple of things, and this is step number six. Okay, so first off, I really have to recommend you watch for shadows. Shadows can be a killer. I have made this mistake over and over. It is technically possible to be able to fix this a little bit in post. I'm going to talk about avoiding shadows uh, in just a second. But looking for shadows is a critical part of step number six. Uh, step five, by the way, was taking a test shot and adjusting the power accordingly. But what I'm looking for as I take that test shot is I'm looking to see that the on the LCD screen, which is not a you know, fabulous way to be able to judge this, but it's what I have. I'm looking to see that the models look brighter than the background. That's the indicator that I have the lights where I want them. Now, not so bright that they're like, <laughs> there's no detail in their skin. So I, I hit, you know, I review it. I chimp for, for looking at the a photo I just took. And I, I try to zoom in even a little bit onto the family in the face to see, do I have detail? Is it there? And I, I know this is a JPEG that I'm looking at. Even if you're shooting raw, when you're looking at live view, you're seeing a JPEG. So I know I have a little bit more room because I'm shooting raw in the files to be able to deal with it. But I don't want to go over the top with the flash. I definitely need to see that the flash is having an impact on them. Um, when I first started out, one of the ways I could do it was I could just turn off the flash, which is really simple to do with using the controller, take a shot, turn on the flash, take a shot and compare the two. And then I can see what the flash is doing to the photos. I've got enough experience now with it that I can judge that without having to do that a uh, little bit longer process of taking two photos like that. But that's a good way to be able to learn. And if you have some willing participants who are will let you get some practice in, that would be a great thing to try. Starting to set your eye or tune your eye so that you can see the impact of the flash uh, by comparing it without the flash. And uh, it's a good exercise to be able to go through. But that's my goal. That's what I'm trying to do is go through those six steps. Every time we have a location change, I redo the steps and uh, reconsider what we're doing or or if the group size changes if the number of models that i'm shooting changes i kind of have to re-go through the steps all right the last thing i want to cover um which i i already alluded to is avoiding shadows i have ruined <laughs> well i guess i fixed them technically i i spent a, a lot of time on the computer in photoshop fixing it but um i it is so hard to do it is really, really rough. 
I am a massive proponent of post-processing, but I'm also a massive proponent of getting everything right in camera that you possibly can, making that as good as possible. So there's less work to do and you can enjoy uh, enhancing and adjusting the photos as you get on the camera because it just improves things and can be (laughs) fairly easy to do. You get a, a, a lot of reward for a little bit of effort and if you don't pay attention to shadows while you're shooting, especially when you are adding flash, then you're going to add a lot on the effort end and barely come up to like acceptable on the reward end. <laughs> it's just not, it's not good. Shadows can be super tricky. Um, when you have one model, it's not as hard. Really, you're only worried about then the ambient light causing like harsh shadows and and do I have my flash maybe too far away and I need to bring it closer because the shadows are not smooth transitions like we talked about soft lighting. Um, but when you add more than one model, when you get to two and and beyond, now you have the possibility that the model one model can cast a shadow on the other model. Even if your light is nice and close and super soft, that shadow can be a problem. You can end up with the, especially a head casting a shadow across like half of the other model's head. And that's just not good. That's It's obvious to people when they look at it. It's a real challenge to fix and you just need to watch for it as you're shooting and fix it in camera get a shot that doesn't have that. And we don't want to eliminate every shadow. We've talked about that already too, that shadows add depth to the photos. When they're not there, we call it flat lighting because there's just, it makes them look more two-dimensional than a three-dimensional one. So we still want to have some shadows. You can still have a shadow from one model on the, uh, on the other. Just make sure they're controlled so that they're fairly small, they aren't obvious, and it's not drawing attention to it. And if half of a model's face is covered in shadow, that's going to draw attention to it. So you got to be super careful. The things to to that help then, one of the things that really, really helps is shortening the shadows, which you can do by positioning them above the head of the models. That's why I do that, why I position it above the head. That shortens the shadows. It makes it less likely that you're going to have a shadow from one model casting massively on the other shadow. Now, it does mean you're going to have some shadows like under the nose, Uh, under the chin. You're going to have some shadows there, but as long as the lighting is soft, that's fine. That makes it look good. That makes, that adds some depth. It can be desirable. And that's, that's how this all turns out. So shadows, critical thing to pay attention to as you're setting up your lighting and trying to make sure that you don't have shadows. You can also use like uh, moving people around. So as I talk as I'm reviewing the images that I'm shooting, I, I do the camera shooting and my wife is constantly positioning everybody and, and ta- helping the girls with their hair, making sure they don't have massive flyaways or hair hanging down in their eyes, uh, you know, one strand or something like that, because it's easier again to fix it in camera than in post. Um, and, and, uh, wrinkles and shirts, whatever, all, all of the appearance things she's paying attention to, she's helping them with. And that's why we make such a good team in doing this. But, um, she'll, she'll also, if, like, if I look at a photo and I say, I have a shadow on this person, then she'll eat, she may try to move around or I may go and move the lights. So I deal with the lights in the camera. She deals with the people works out really well. So shadows, good thing to pay attention to and uh, try to do your best to uh, make them look good. 
not eliminate them, but look good in the, in the photo. All right, so there you go. That's how I did the lighting for these shoots. It's the thought process I went through, the gear I went through, how I positioned them. I hope it came through in the audio. I hope you can understand what it is that I'm talking about in this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. I'll remind you that the show notes, a lot of links and, and that diagram and, and the example photos will be over at masterphotographypodcast.com. Go check that out. Uh, Facebook group, you can join that. We have a lot of activity there. It's it's a fun thing to be using. Um, I I really still struggle with, we can't get a post to really reach many of you unless you're actively seeking out to go and look at the group. You, you probably don't see a lot of the posts. So you, I, you may want to check it out. You can join the group by going to search for Master Photography Podcast in Facebook. You have to ask to join. And in order to keep the bots and the spammers out of there, uh, we only accept it if you can name a host, which for this episode is Jeff. So if you can just say Jeff when it asks the question and name a host on the show, just put Jeff and I'll know you're a listener and I'll let you in. And if you don't answer the question, I don't let you in. Uh, you can see my work over at jsharmanphotos.com. You can check out my other podcast, phototacopodcast.com. Now, this has taken a really long time to uh, publish my the episode I'm working on. I am doing some thorough, thorough testing of um, AFMA, the autofocus microadjust. Another thing that is important for DSLRs in particular, it can be applicable to mirrorless cameras, but it's mostly DSLRs where this is a big deal. And I'm just doing a, a ton of testing. I'm, I'm using software, uh, Focal software from Rikon. I'm testing it out. They have a brand new version. There's a whole bunch of work. I've probably spent 180 hours on this so far. <laughs> and it's delayed the episode because I keep finding more things I have to figure out and try. And and so hopefully I can get that done. My goal is before the end of November, I'll be able to release that. But I've had to order some more cables and equipment and it, it's been involved. So Hopefully it'll be worth it. Uh, you can catch me on Facebook too. Um, I'll have that and Twitter and Instagram in the show notes so that you can see my personal accounts if you want to follow me. That might help so you can see the, some of these portraits that I, I put out that I don't share everyone on the show. So there you go. That's the uh, that's that's what I have today for you. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, thank you so much for listening. It really, really helps. And I'd love to have you share the show. If you are enjoying this, if it's helping you, then uh, share it with other photographers. Let them know about Master Photography Podcast, Photo Taco Podcast, and the resources that we have available for, to you there. And we'll see you again in another seven days. 